Thank you, John and Kathy, for sharing your story. Uh, God reconciles broken relationships. God reconciles humanity back to him through Jesus. And this morning we want to talk about that concept of peace in our lives. Uh, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a, a quick overview of what we're walking through. It's, it's important. In your bulletin, uh, you'll find a sheet that looks like this. It says peace on the top of it. Because uh, what we are walking through this month, you're going to have something very tangible in your hands, is understanding the concept of Advent. The themes of Advent are not just for you and I to experience the, the hope and the peace and the joy and the love that Jesus brings in our life. That's extremely important. But also understanding because Jesus came 2,000 years ago, the original first Advent, the coming of Jesus. Now we live the in the in-between because he is coming again, his second Advent. And in between those two advents, you and I, when we say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives in us and we become the tangible reality of who Jesus is for our world. And that means that we don't only just experience the themes of Advent, we actually live them out in our lives so other people around us can experience those as well. So if you're here last week, there was that insert that said hope on it, and there was the passage that we talked about out of 1 Peter, some things to reflect on, and then some ideas of how you can live out the concept or theme of hope in your life. So I hope that you challenge yourself this last week to find an opportunity to do that. I've heard some different feedback from people of, of finding ways to, to show hope to people around them. The same thing is true for this week as we walk through this passage in 2 Corinthians, which we'll jump into in just a moment, with the theme of peace and understanding how you and I can help bring peace and reconciliation in our lives and in the lives of people around us. So it's taking this concept of Advent and moving it to the point of incarnation where we actually live it out. And so we'll talk about that this morning, as you've seen, and, and as evidenced by the Von Felton, sharing what they experienced, what God had done in their lives. The same is true for all of us. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and focus on verse 16 to verse 21 this morning and talk about the concept of peace, which you and I will understand in, in a nutshell. Peace is living in a reconciled relationship with God and with each other. When we think of peace, so many times we think the absence of war, the absence of turmoil. We think everything's tranquil and everything's easy, and that's peace. But when the Bible talks about peace, it usually and almost always talks about peace in the context of relationships. Because the reason that there isn't peace in the world is because there isn't peace, peace amongst people. That's why there's war. War is a result of fractured and broken relationships among humanity, and we live in a fallen state. And because of that, because that comes from our own broken relationships with God. So peace comes when, recon when reconciliation comes, when relationships are brought back together. Perfect example of this. Just this week, Nelson Mandela passed away. If, if anybody in our lifetime has understood the concept of reconciliation, it's Nelson Mandela. Who in his own country that was divided for years and years and years endured torture and imprisonment because he knew that somehow his country, although they came from different backgrounds and different races and different colors of skin, could be reconciled back together. And in his lifetime, he saw that. Is South Africa perfect? No, but it's far better than it used to be. People that would never talk to each other, never live next to each other, never rub shoulders with each other, now have come together. Why? Because there's somebody actually believed in the concept of reconciliation. And that concept is not unique to Nelson Mandela. It didn't come from him. It came from God. And the reason it comes from God, before we read the passage, is that you and I have to understand that God created us to live in the context of peace. 
If you go back to the original context of the Garden of Eden, the Hebrew word that describes what happened in the Garden is the word shalom. We've heard it before. It's the word peace. And God created this this context called shalom in the garden where human beings like you and I could live in a direct face-to-face relationship with the God of the universe and things could be at peace. Before you and I get to uh, Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve blow it and sin enters the equation, can you just imagine for a moment what it would be like to live in total peace with God? There is no animosity, there is no shame, there is no guilt. In fact, everything in all of creation actually worked right. Just, we don't even have a concept. There is no, no, no natural disasters. The, the earth would produce what they needed. The animals were there for them. Adam and Eve got along with each other. That God would come walking in the garden. That's, I mean, that's a crazy concept. That's what God created for you and I. This concept of shalom, of peace. But then he also loved us enough to give us the ability to choose whether to live in that shalom or not. And as you know, Adam and Eve, not only in all, and really it's amazing, in one incident, in one event, Adam and Eve fractured the relationship between each other and between them and God. And we've been doing that for now since time began. And that's why Jesus came, because he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to live in that broken state, that unreconciled state, that state that lacks peace, what God designed for you and I. So that's why God sent Jesus into the world. Now let me read, this is what this is described for you and I in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let me read verse 16 to verse 21. He says, so from now, this is Paul writing, from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so, we do so no longer. And in verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In those words, Paul describes for you and I the whole reason that human history is unfolding. Is that God has sent Jesus into the world through his death to bring us back to what he originally intended for all of us. To be in a reconciled relationship with him. To live in a context of being face to face. That's the beginning and that's the end. Because when you get to the end of the book of Revelation, the description of what you and I will have is that we will be in the presence of God with no more pain, no more sorrowing, sorrow, no more death, none of that. Because what God intended for humanity to be will finally be realized again. I'm a little excited about that. That God loves us enough to want to be in that kind of relationship with us. But understanding for you and I, how do we come to a place to understand what does it mean to be reconciled to God? What does that really look like in our lives? How do we actually experience that? From this passage, I want to touch on a few things because that's where we want to start this morning in terms of how do we know and see and experience what it means to be reconciled to God? Look at verse 16. The first thing you and I understand about what happens when we walk through this being separate from God to being unified with God, being reconciled, is that we have a new attitude towards him. This is something you and I can look in our own lives and say, am I reconciled to God? Am I right with God? Am I at peace with God? Paul says this, so from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, 
we, we don't do that any longer. What is Paul saying? He's saying that before you and I were reconciled to God, we had an issue with God. And so we would look at Christ differently because we didn't know him yet. We didn't understand him. And because of that, we would be at odds with God because there would be no reason to really obey God because we weren't in a right relationship with him. And our attitude and our disposition towards God wasn't something of obedience or to follow him. It was quite the opposite because we were at odds with God in our life. Whether we could articulate it or not, you and I were at odds with God. That's not a good place to be. To be at odds with the creator of all things, the one that's always been and will always be. But that's the state that we find ourselves in. But Paul's saying you used to look at Christ that way. You used to visit or view him that way. That, that obedience wasn't something that was a part of your life. Why? Because your attitude towards Christ was different because you were at odds with God. But once you and I become reconciled back to God through Jesus, our attitude changes. Why? Because now we realize that we're in a right relationship with God. And that's when this, this thing called obedience becomes something that you and I can actually live out in our lives because we want to obey. Because we know that our relationship is right with God. But when our relationship is broken, there's no reason to do anything of what God would want us to do in our lives. That's what's sometimes the tension that we create for people who don't know Jesus is that we apply to them that somehow they would understand the concept of obedience. And so we make morality kind of the context of what it means to know Jesus. So when people outside of Christ mess up in their life, we're quick to judge them, not realizing that they don't have the right attitude towards Christ. They're what Paul describes here. You used to look at him in a worldly way. That's the way the world sees him. So it makes sense that obedience wouldn't, to, to moral code wouldn't have anything to be a part of their lives. Why? Because they don't really know Jesus. But that means for you and I, we have to think through the concept of obedience in our life and look at our own lives and find out, are we really following Jesus? Are we being obedient? In his own words, Jesus said in, in John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will obey what I command. If you look at me and understand who I am and are reconciled through me back to God, then you'll want to obey me. Has anybody ever struggled with obedience before? Please raise your hand. Because we have. But you know what I found in my life, even growing up, and even I see it in my, the lives of my kids, thinking about kind of a parent-child relationship. When there is a fracture in that relationship, obedience is really difficult. So let's just say, for example, so when I'm growing up, say, say that I'm at odds with my parents because something I perceived that they did or things just aren't right in the household and, and maybe I'm upset with them because I got offended by something they said or that they did. And then my mom comes to me and she says, I want you to empty the trash. Am I going to say, well, sure. I'd love to empty the trash. I'd love to obey whatever you want me to do. What would you do? Let's just be honest. Heck no, I'm not going to empty the trash. You've offended me. Sorry, I almost said the wrong word, but I said heck. It's okay. But understand, I'm not going to say, oh, sure, everything's fine. I'm just going to do what you say. See, the, one of the reasons you and I sometimes, I think there's even within families, when a child rebels, it's not always the parent's fault, but a lot of times when a child rebels, they're rebelling against something and a fracture in that relationship that you and I as parents, we only see, oh, they're just disobedient. No, there's a fracture in the relationship that has caused the disobedience and caused the rebellion that we're not dealing with. So we just kind of ratchet up the obedience factor and say, okay, you just need to do this. You just need to obey me. Not realizing that underneath the surface, there's a broken relationship there and we can't expect obedience out of our kids if the relationship's broken. See, it's the same thing with God. 
that if you and I struggle with obedience, we struggle to do what God wants us to do in our life, we have to take a step back and say, okay, maybe, maybe I thought I was reconciled to God, but maybe I'm not. Because when you and I live in a right relationship with God, it's actually easy to do what he calls us to do. Why? Because we want to please him. Because we know he loves us. But if we're at odds with him and we're unreconciled, it's very easy to be disobedient. So Paul says, you used to see him differently, but now you don't. Because if you're reconciled, you see him with a different attitude. An attitude and disposition of obedience instead of disobedience. Which leads to the second thing. Look at verse 17. Not only you you and I have a new attitude if we're reconciled to God, but we get a new life. Verse 17, this is like one of the most quoted verses in Scripture. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. The old way of living is gone. We actually get a new life. When we were at odds with God, but then Jesus comes. He dies on the cross. He reconciles us back to God. Now we actually can change. We talked about this last week. Actually, life can be new. Things can be different. Human beings can change. We actually can have a new life when we're reconciled back to God. But many times we think that we don't need that reconciliation in order for us to actually have a new life. Because if we just modify our behavior, if we just change certain circumstances in our life, then we can live the way we're supposed to, but not realizing that underneath the surface we're still at odds with God. We're not at peace with Him. We're unreconciled. And the world that we live in strives to live out the perfect life, the life they think they're supposed to live, apart from God. And it doesn't work. If you look in our own lives, there are sections of our life, and maybe for some of it's all of our life, we really, if we're honest, we've tried to do it all on our own. We've tried to live our lives apart from God. We've tried to, in a sense, live separate from God because we want to do it our way. And on the outside, we can make it look really good. There are a lot of people in our world I'll look to and know that they're not followers of Jesus, and I can say, you know, they're extremely successful. They're amazing people. But what could their life be if they were actually reconciled to God? What would it look like if they actually had a new life? Not only would they have the gifts and the talents and the skills that everyone wows at, but what if their life was actually at peace with God? How much more could they be? How much more new could their life be if they were reconciled to God? Now, you and I think about our own lives. See, you and I have a vision of what our life's supposed to be like, and we try to live that out. And sometimes if God gets in the way, we forget about Him because we have an agenda for our life. It's funny, sometimes we, we ask the question, God, what's, will, what's, your, what's your will for my life? And the, that's the wrong question. It's what's God's will for the world. It's reconciliation. But when we say to God, what's your will for my life? Really what we're saying, God, is I have an idea of what it is and I want you to make it happen. That's usually what it is. But if we're not reconciled to God, there's always a limit that you and I are going to reach in our life. We're never fully going to be who God created us to be. Because remember, God created Adam and Eve in the context of shalom. He created every human being to live at peace with God. And you and I can only fully be who God created us to be in that context. But how do we live our lives? Not on the fullest capacity. A number of years ago, uh, Kim told me her car wasn't running really well. And so... I said, okay, well, let me drive it. And she said, yeah, it just it's not accelerating very fast. It's going really slow. The engine sounds kind of bad. And I'm not a mechanic, but 
I know enough to know when a car's not running properly. And so I said, let me drive your car today. So she said, okay. So I got in her car and I started up and right away when I started, I could tell something wasn't right. It sounded like the engine was running really rough. And so I said, well, let me get it out on the street. So I, I get out on the street and I, I turn the corner and I, I go to make a, a right turn and there's some cars coming and I step on it and the car just kind of like lugs along it doesn't really it's like but what's the strangest thing is the engine's going really fast you can hear it going and i'm not really going that fast and people are kind of blowing by me i'm like what in the world's going on so i thought well maybe i just need to get it on the freeway and really open it up it just you know something that's in there just needs to go and so so i get on the freeway and same thing that this time the engine sounds a whole lot louder and it's going a whole lot slower and i think i'm like maxing out at like 40 miles an hour on the freeway and people are driving by and giving me certain friendly hand gestures as they go. And I'm thinking, okay, this can't be right. So I end up limping the car to our mechanic. And so I pull it in and, and he pops the hood and he's listening to it. And I mean, within five minutes, he assesses what the problem is. He said, this is a four-cylinder car. I said, well, I know that. He said, but you're only running on three right now. One of them's not working at all. I said, hmm, that might be why it's not going as fast as it normally goes. And he was able to figure out why it was doing that. And I don't know if it was some computer issue or whatever it was. But I remember it was funny sitting in a car, almost flooring, putting the pedal to the metal and doing 40 miles an hour. And that was as good as it's going to get. And you know, in our lives, sometimes we don't realize that's exactly what we do when we're not at peace with God. We try our hardest and, and our lives rub up and we think, wow, this has really got to be it. And this is what's, what life's supposed to be about. Never realizing that we haven't even come close to the fullest potential that God created us for. What would life be like if every day of our life we sought to be reconciled with God through Jesus? That we asked for forgiveness, we confessed our sin, we walked out our lives at peace with God. When we knew there was, a, there was an issue deep down in our souls that with God, instead of running from Him and hiding from Him, that we came before Him and we confessed our sin and He would forgive us and so we would be reconciled. Can you imagine every single day of our life how different it would be if we didn't have to run or hide or somehow think that we could cover up what's going on in our lives. We could actually live a life that God intended for us to live to the fullest, which leads to the third thing about what it means to be reconciled to God. Is So not only do we experience this new attitude towards who Jesus is and experience the new life he has for us, but we end up getting a new relationship. So Paul goes on, first part of verse 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This relationship that God intended for you and I to have. What would that be like for every day of our life to experience this reality? That God looks down at us when you and I confess our sin. I love what Paul writes there. Not counting men's sins against them. Because he already counted them against Jesus when Jesus died on the cross. That all of our sin, all of our failure gets put onto Jesus on the cross. And that means for you and I, that when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin or our failure or brokenness. He sees Jesus' righteousness. He's not counting that against us anymore. Therefore, the relationship that Adam and Eve lost in the garden, you and I get to regain today. Because the thing that separated us from God, our sin, has now been taken care of because of who Jesus is. We get a new relationship and that means that our disposition towards God is not this, this fear that we're going to mess up all the time. That we're running and hiding from God. Because what, what, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve did when God came walking in the garden when, after they had blown it? Anybody remember? They hid. 
We've been hiding for thousands of years when God comes onto the scene. Why? Because we feel guilt and shame and we feel exposed and, and we feel like, oh, God's going to crush us. And so we run and hide when we fail instead of coming and being honest and confessing our sin and letting God, what, bring redemption and reconciliation through Jesus. That's the reason that Jesus came to do that. But we have this context that you and I live in this fear that, again, it's kind of like I talked about last week, that God is just up in heaven looking down on us, just waiting for us to mess up so that he can crush us. That's kind of the way that we live, that God is this big, angry person just waiting to make life miserable for us. And that's the opposite. Remember, his disposition towards us, his default is mercy, not judgment. But when we live under that context, we, we constantly are looking over our shoulders just knowing that we're going to mess up and that God's going to somehow judge us on the spot for us. Or we're going to live in this constant state of shame because we won't come out with the sin and the failure in our lives. It's a miserable existence. I played with the first time I ever played basketball in elementary school. Thank goodness I got the worst coach out of the way. The worst coach I ever had was my first coach in basketball. Made me contemplate never playing the sport again. I got onto the team, and I remember we went to our first game, and I had not had a chance to. I came into the season a little late. It was our first game. I hadn't been able to practice with the team yet, but because there were only five players that showed up, I started my first game. So I ended up onto the court, and so I'm trying to kind of mesh with the other guys, and I don't even really think we were running an offense. I don't even know what we were doing. But I remember basically my job was just on the court. Basically, the, the coach told me, just go out there and don't mess up. That was like the whole concept. Just don't mess up. That's really great encouragement, you know. Just don't mess up, otherwise you're in trouble. He couldn't bench me because there was only five players, and that would make four, and that wouldn't work. So I remember playing, and I'm just like thinking, okay, what's the right thing to do? What do I do? And I remember I finally got one open look at the basket. And I was about 15 feet out, and I shot it, and I, I missed it. It was way off. But that was it. That was the only kind of contribution I guess I had to the game, other than the fact that I didn't hopefully mess up. So I got to the end of the game thinking, I did my job. I didn't mess up. My coach pulls me aside after the game, and he says, that's the worst shot I've ever seen. I said, wow. In fact, he said, you know what? That, that shot put us up a creek without a paddle. That's, I remember the phrase he used, and he actually didn't say it that nicely. And I remember thinking, wow. And the rest of the season was horrible. Every time I got into the game, all I did was play with this fear that I don't want to mess up. I don't want to cause a turnover. I don't want to miss a shot. I don't want to double dribble. I don't want the ball to fall off, my, hit my foot and go out of bounds. So I did nothing the whole year and lived in fear constantly that my coach was going to get mad at me. It's miserable. Some of us live our life that way, that we feel somehow that God is already upset and angry at us. Not realizing that when Jesus died on the cross, God knows that you and I are going to fail. That's why he's made provision through Jesus' death on the cross. That even when we do fail, God's forgiveness is extended to us through Jesus, which brings us back into a right relationship with God. We don't have to live that way. But sometimes we choose to live that way. Why? Because we haven't walked out the process of being reconciled back to God. We can't have a new attitude. We can't have a new life. We can't have a new relationship the way that God purposed for humanity to be. So understanding that, but since we are reconciled to God, I love this passage because Paul goes on and says, now that basically you've been reconciled, now that becomes a part of who you are. Listen to verse 20 as we transition to talk about what that means like for our lives to live out this concept of reconciliation. Paul says, you, uh, you are therefore Christ's ambassadors, 
as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What Paul, what Paul is saying is, you're now representatives of God. Once you've been reconciled to God, now you're ambassadors. That means that you are ones that are representing God to the world and what it looks like to live in a reconciled relationship with the God of the universe. No pressure, <laughs> but that's what God has put on you and I. Because it's not just about us being reconciled. It's about the world being reconciled. It's about the people around us who have yet to experience that. Who have yet to know that there's a God that loves them enough that he sent Jesus so that they could be in a right relationship with him. So what does that look like in our lives? What does it mean to to be an ambassador of reconciliation? Verse 18, the first thing it means for you and I is that reconciliation is our ministry. You think, well, wait a second. I wasn't called... Pastor John, you're called to be a pastor. You're in the ministry. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you're a part of his ministry. You don't have to have a title or a license or a vocation that happens to be in the realm of ministry. You and I all become ambassadors for Jesus to live out this concept of reconciliation in our lives. Paul says, all this from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The most powerful ministry in all the world is the ministry of reconciliation. It's why we exist. It's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's what Peter says in his writings, that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. He's waiting for people to be reconciled. God loves people so much that he's actually delaying his return so more and more people can respond. So that us, we, the church, can, can be people who demonstrate this concept of reconciliation in our lives. Our reconciliation with God, our reconciliation with each other. See, because we could talk all day long about being reconciled with God, but if we're in broken relationships, we're not reconciled with God. We can't be okay with God and not okay with each other. They're all mixed together. So this ministry of reconciliation is not only to help people to see that the God of the universe wants them to be reconciled back to him, but also that people can see that God wants you and I as human beings to be in right reconciled relationships with each other. The power of reconciliation can transform lives. Look at the nation of South Africa. We just talked, just mentioned Nelson Mandela. That nation is different. Then even when I was growing up, I remember apartheid, and I remember the, the separation, and I remember that that was a huge global issue. And then, obviously, because the way things unfolded, and Nelson Mandela getting out of jail, and him becoming the president, and bringing this point of reconciliation, which is a huge demonstration to the world, that even people who hated each other can how, somehow come together. That's a ministry that only God gives. And he gives it to all of us. He doesn't just give it to, to, to Nelson Mandela or people who are, have lots of influence or lots of authority. He gives it to all of us. Just, just for a moment, I want you to see the reconciliation that God brings to you and I is meant to flow like a river. It's not meant to be a reservoir or a lake. It's not something that God deposits in you and I so that we can kind of just keep expanding our capacity to hang on to it and never extend it to anybody else. The reconciliation that flows from God to us through Jesus is meant to flow right through us to people around us. That's the way it's worked for thousands of years. That's the ministry of reconciliation. I want just to, as an analogy, just think about this for a moment. If, if ministry of reconciliation is really the most powerful thing that can transform lives, just think about it in terms of a river. So living up in the Northwest for seven years, I saw a lot of rivers. 
Lots of rivers, big rivers. The Columbia River, incredibly powerful and large body of water that's constantly flowing. And if you, if you go up the Columbia River Gorge out of Portland and you keep, if you have like lots of days and lots of time, and you go up and you just keep following the river and then all of its tributaries, there's about 40 dams that follow its way along that river and the tributaries that kind of flow into the Columbia River before it hits the Pacific Ocean. And those dams are, most of those are set up to, to produce hydroelectricity, which means the water flows through the dams, it turns a huge turbine, and that turbine produce, produces electricity. It's incredible when you harness the power of the flow of water, how much electricity you can come up with. It's estimated on an annual basis, those 40 dams that actually use the power of the Columbia River and its tributaries produce enough electricity for 35 million households in one year. The power of water. The power of water that is not just contained, but the power of water that is allowed to flow to turn a turbine to produce electricity. 35 million households annually is how much electricity is produced. Now, on a much grander scale, if you and I understand the power of reconciliation, that means when God is flowing his reconciliation to our lives, he's doing it to turn the turbine in our souls to produce the same thing in the lives of other people. And I know right now you can think of 10 people off the top of your head that you either see or you know that you live next to or you work next to or a family member that are in a place of being unreconciled to God. They're living apart from God. They're living separated from Him. They don't know who He is. And God has poured His reconciliation into your life, not only so you can be right with God, but so that they can understand that there's a God that loves them. That their life is not described by peace or shalom. And they have yet to really fully realize the full capacity of what God created them for because they're not yet reconciled to God. It flows through us if you and I will be willing to embrace that. And you've heard this in this series and you've heard it a lot because when we look at Jesus' writings and we look through the scriptures, it comes up all the time about our own broken relationships. There's some of us that you know you're unreconciled with a friend or a family member. And you probably have come and you're getting tired of me talking about being in reconciled relationships with people. You're tired of me talking about if somebody's offended that somebody needs to go and make that right. You're tired of me talking about not allowing gossip in a church. I'm not talking about it. The Holy Spirit's talking about it because it's been, it's been in Scripture for thousands of years. And some of you are in unreconciled relationships and God is calling you this Christmas season. Maybe the greatest gift that you're going to give to yourself or to anybody else is to make a relationship that's wrong right. Because nothing brings more peace than that. And I know especially at this season, you know, when I talk to people, half the people I know look forward to Christmas, half of them dread it. And the half that dread it know that they're going to have to find themselves sitting in a household with people who are their family members that they can't stand. Because something that happened in the past and they've been in broken relationships and so they try to find ways to not be with family anymore. If you and I have made a commitment to follow Jesus, we can't live in that camp anymore. We have to find ways, like Paul said, as far as it depends on us, to live at peace with everyone. When you and I experience that reconciliation, the peace that comes to our lives is amazing. I had a friend who was a part of our church when we were in Ventura a number of years ago. And we were pretty good friends. And something happened in the church. And he and his wife were going through some struggles in their relationship. And so I was providing some counseling for them. And they were walking through some really difficult times. And 
So somehow as I challenged them in their own relationship to be reconciled, he turned on me. And he got angry at me. And he said that I wasn't doing what I should be doing as a pastor. And so one day I get a phone call from him. And he's angry and he's yelling at me. And he said, I just want you to know, he goes, we're never coming back to your church again. And I remember sitting there. I was on vacation. He called my cell phone. It was a great way to spend vacation. I remember sitting on the bed and thinking, God, what did I do? I was trying to help him. And so I prayed. I'm like, Lord, what did I do wrong? What, please help me and understand what I did wrong. And I tried to reach out to him in the future, and, and there was nothing. He, he has, had gone his way. And so I thought, okay, God, as far as it depends on me, I'm going to try to live at peace with him. But the door's closed right now, so I pray that someday you will do something. I think about 10 years went by. I got an email and it had his name on it. And as soon as his name came up, I'm like, oh, it's painful. Like, what in the world would he want after 10 years? I open the email and I start to read and I'm sitting at my computer and I almost started sobbing. He said, I need to ask for your forgiveness for the way I treated you as my pastor 10 years ago. And he began to explain to me what God had done in his own life and how he'd gone through some really difficult times and he ended up finding his way back into another church and the pastor talked about dealing with broken relationships And he knew he had experienced the forgiveness that God extended him, but he realized that he had not extended that same forgiveness to me. So he emailed me, and then he called me. In fact, we were in Oregon, and when we came back down here, I got to see him and give him a hug. I can't just tell you what that does to know that I'm not at odds with people anymore. And thank the Lord that he reached out to me because I know on my side he had closed the door, but he reached out to me. And the peace that I felt knowing that I don't have issue with him anymore. When I see his name and I hear about him, I don't get mad and there's not pain anymore because we're reconciled. God desires that for all of us. There shouldn't be one human being that you and I know of as far as it depends on us that causes us constant pain when we think about them. Because if, we, if they do, we haven't extended them forgiveness. We haven't sought reconciliation. Now, if they close the door, that's on them. But what God desires from us is what the ministry of reconciliation to flow through our lives. Which leads to the second thing. The second thing is in verse 19, Paul goes on and says that reconciliation is not only it's our ministry, it's our message. He says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, which means... That is the central theme of our lives, is that we are people constantly being reconciled to God because we have a tendency to fail over and over and over and again. Reconciliation happens once, but it's ongoing in our lives. And that's why Jesus' death on the cross provides forgiveness for all of our sin. Because when we fail, we are once again have to be reconciled back to God. It is our message. And the reason it's so important for you and I, and the reason it's so important for our world is because... Apart from being reconciled to God, we are absolutely separated from Him. And this is sometimes, depending on how long you've known the Lord, we forget about this reality. We don't understand the concept of being separated from God. But that's the context that we're in when we're unreconciled. We are separated from God. We are isolated. It's what Adam and Eve experienced when God literally kicked them out of the garden because of their sin. That isolation, that separation... That, that we experience apart from God. But if our message is reconciliation, then we have to make sure that we understand that people around us are understanding the opportunity they have to be reconciled back to God. Because apart from that message, they are isolated, separated. Just, just think about what that would be like. Because ultimately, 
the, the full impact of what humanity wants, which is so many times we want to reject God, we want to be isolated from God, is the very thing that humanity will experience for eternity. It's called hell. It's a place where, where the, the tangible presence of God is not there like we would experience it in heaven. But can you imagine living like that forever? You start in this life and it goes on forever, being separated. What would it be like to feel that sense of isolation, that there is no hope to ever be reconnected with God again? It's over. One of the things that that I so appreciate about my son that I saw in him when he was really young is that he, he has a deep sense of compassion for people who have been isolated and are alone. It's something in him that he has always had in him. And I remember the first time I saw that. We, we sat down as a family to watch the movie, An American Tale. You know, Five Old the Little Mouse from Russia that comes to the United States. Remember that? It's an older movie. But we were watching and I think, oh, great. A nice little cartoon for the family to watch. Halfway through, you know, Five Old comes to America and then he gets separated from his parents. And as we're watching the movie, it was pretty heavy and it's kind of sad. And I look over and I can't remember how old Jordan was, but he was really young. And he's just sitting there and he's just sobbing. I'm like, well, this is really a great movie to pick. Traumatized my son. And he's just sobbing. I said, Jordan, what's wrong? He said, Daddy's all alone. He said, he's totally separated. And I remember, this is my little boy and he's just sobbing. Because he's feeling what this stupid cartoon mouse is feeling. That he's totally alone and he has nobody. And there's been other times as Jordan's gotten older, I've seen the same tears come to his eyes when he sees people like that. Even when we're driving down the street and he sees somebody who's homeless and is, and is struggling, he feels that weight. And so many times I've stepped back and said, God, give me that brokenness inside of me for people around me who are separated from God. Far more than just being isolated in this world is to be isolated in the life to come. And that everybody that lives around us that are unreconciled with God, God needs to break our hearts to say, I've given you the message of reconciliation that you can be hope to people. You can bring peace to people. Why? Because you're reconciled and they need to be reconciled. Oh, but how do I say it? How do I communicate it? I'm not good. I'm not an evangelist. Just be yourself. Just live out a reconciled existence with God. Just be honest about your failure and the forgiveness that God brings through Jesus. And let the Holy Spirit work out reconciliation in people's lives. If we live that out, it is our message. It's what our life should be about. Reconciliation means there's something that went wrong that has to be reconciled. And that means it's okay for us to be human and not to be perfect. What I mean by that is so many times you think, oh, I have to have it all together in order to tell people about Jesus. Because they'll look at my life and think, wow, if that's what it means to know Jesus, then you're not perfect and I don't want that. That's the opposite. When people look at our brokenness, it helps them to understand, you know what, they're just like me. But they found a way to be reconciled. They find a way to live at peace. Why? Because something in them is different than what is in me. That's what God has desired for you and I, to be reconciled, to have that message. And then finally... Paul says in verse 21 that reconciliation actually is our identity. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God gave us a different identity. He took our identity, which is sinful, sinners, and he placed that sin on Jesus on the cross. He pours out his wrath and his judgment on Jesus so that we are given this new identity. 
It's called sons and daughters of God. It's called righteousness. It's called being reconciled. So we have this new identity, and this is who we are, and this is the way our life is supposed to be. This is how we experience life now, in a reconciled state. So understanding that for you and I means that we have to shift the way we view our lives and and understand the way that we make decisions and the way that we do things has a lot to do with who we understand that we are. So much comes of our understanding of our identity. We make decisions every day. We do right and wrong things based on who we think that we are. And when you and I live in this this idea that we are not righteous, that we are somehow unreconciled, that somehow God doesn't accept us, then we make decisions accordingly, and our lives bear that fruit. If you and I live out with this idea, let me just compare righteousness to sinfulness in our mindset, in our identity. If you and I really believe that we're righteous before God, that Jesus, who knew no sin, took on our sin so that we could be the righteousness of God, if we really believe that, then you and I will live out this thing called security. I'm not just talking about security in our in eternal life. I'm talking about secure in who you are because God created you to be who you are. That is the gift that God gives you. It's this gift of identity that I am okay in my own skin. Not because of my sin and my failure, but because Jesus has chosen to accept me through his death on the cross, that I am secure in who I am. And all that matters is what God says is God has already made the statement, you are righteous because of Jesus' death on the cross. Now, if you and I don't live with that reality, we we reject that. What's the opposite? The opposite is insecurity. And insecurity is this idea that somehow you and I have to strive every single day of our life to live up to the identity of righteousness. Every single day we're trying to live out perfectly, to try to make it work, and it's just not working. So we're constantly insecure. Why? Because we're afraid that we're never going to be able to do enough. It's a sinful mindset. It's a sinful identity. A righteous identity has a humble concept to it. Humility means I'm willing to not look at myself in a way that is not accurate or true. Somebody who's truly humble has a very easy time sacrificing themselves because they don't think too highly of themselves. When you and I struggle with the concept of humility, which is a righteous thought of our who we are, and we struggle with that, it's really hard to be self-sacrificing because we think we're Somebody who doesn't deserve to sacrifice. Other people deserve to sacrifice, but not me. There's that sense of entitlement. And a, a sinful mindset is prideful. It says, I, I, don't, I, don't ha- I shouldn't have to do that. When a humble mindset realizes you and I are righteous only because of what Jesus did, that means I'm willing to give up everything. I'm willing to sacrifice my life. See, a righteous mindset also understands you and I are accepted. Our identity is accepted. We are not rejected by God, which is what a sinful mindset thinks. I didn't do well enough today, so God has chosen to reject me. I didn't do enough today, therefore God is upset and angry with me. Instead of saying, you know what, I know that I failed, but through confession and forgiveness, I'm reconciled back to God. And then God says, accepted, not rejected. If you and I are truly living out this righteous identity, then our life has a sense of calmness about it. That you and I know that we're at peace with God, therefore we know that God is in control of our lives. The opposite of that is this sinful mindset that is constantly anxious about everything because we really don't perceive that that God is in control. Therefore, we grasp for control. And those of us who are recovering control freaks like me, you and I live in constant states of anxiety because we want to believe that God's in control, but we really don't believe it. Therefore, we're grasping for control, which we can never hang on to. And the way that we do that is that we try to control everything. Anybody relate to me or am I just confessing my sin to you this morning? It's true. We do. 
That's a sinful mindset. If I'm at peace with God and I'm reconciled to God and therefore God is in control of all things, including my sin and failure, I don't have to control anything because God is ultimately in control. The final thing is this concept of peace. If we compare the righteous mindset says, I live at peace with God, therefore I'm right with God. The sinful mindset is constant tension. There's a tension that always is underneath the surface with God. It's always eating at us. And that's what religion produces, is that constant tension in us. I've got to be good enough for God to like me, to accept me, to make me a part of his family. And there's that underlying tension. There is no peace, because we realize that we fail, and then we're at odds with God. And when we're at odds with God, we end up running away from him. We end up isolating ourselves. We end up rebelling. We end up disobeying. All those things, why? Because we're not reconciled with God. Let me close with this and then the worship team will will join me once again as we conclude with a song. In John chapter 20, after Jesus' death and then his resurrection, the disciples, you know, these great pillars of the faith that we all, wow, they're amazing. Remember, they all, at one point, they all turned and ran from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But then Jesus raises from the dead and now he's going and appearing to his disciples. And so he comes into this room where they're basically hiding out. The door is locked. Because now they're in fear, their Messiah, at least their perceived Messiah, is dead. And now, what's gonna, what are the Jews going to do? There's rumors now. Maybe he's been alive. He's risen. They don't know. And so he comes walking into the room, doesn't open the door, doesn't unlock it, just walks in, kind of freaky. He walks into the room, and what does he say, if you know that passage? Peace be with you. Why would Jesus say that? I think there's a lot of reasons Jesus would say that. First of all, when somebody comes walking through a locked door, you need peace. It's a little overwhelming. But I want you to just think about this for a moment. They had hidden out because they were afraid. They thought everything that they believed in had now fallen apart because Jesus had died. And there was rumors of his resurrection. Some of them had seen him, but others were not sure, like Thomas. And Jesus comes walking in. Can you imagine the conviction and shame you would feel the moment Jesus comes walking in? I know I would. Why? Because how many times did Jesus tell them, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And they're like, no, no, you can't do that. And sure enough, they didn't believe that. And in in comes Jesus walking in and said, yes, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. So he says, peace be with you. Peace be with you, because right now you are in fear of who I am, because I've shown up and done what I said I was going to do, and now you're in fear. He says, peace. But what's amazing is in the conversation Jesus has with them, he breathes the Holy Spirit on them. Why? Because he knows that in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit is going to be promised. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And guess what's going to happen? Their life's not going to be their own anymore. And their life's going to be filled with adventure and stress and sacrifice and danger. And so Jesus even there says, peace be with you. I am in control. 2,000 years ago, through the Spirit of God, Jesus comes to you and I at Christmas time and says to you and I, peace be with you. Are you afraid to follow Jesus? He says, be at peace. Are you at odds with God? He says, be at peace. Are you un- unreconciled with God? Jesus says, once again, you can, be, you can embrace me again and be reconciled back to God. The invitation never stops until the day you and I die or the day, the day he comes with his second advent. It never stops the constant invitation of reconciliation. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we consider this concept of reconciliation in our lives.
that you've given us this message. You've given us uh, an identity of being those who live out reconciliation in our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to experience that in our lives. In fact, just if you're here and you've never come to a place of experiencing reconciliation with God through Jesus, then you can do that today. In fact, I'm going to just make it really simple. You can begin by praying right now and asking God to forgive you for the failures of your life. And in that, you're turning over control from you to Him. Because what Jesus did on the cross in His death, taking all of your sin and failure so that you could be right with God. So that today, this morning, you can make a commitment that will change your life forever. But you have to make a decision today that says, I'm going to choose to be right with God. I'm going to choose to embrace Christ's forgiveness. And I'm going to choose that every single day of my life for the rest of my life. If that's what you're doing right now, then you just begin to talk to God. And I'm going to encourage you when the service is over, just a moment, we're going to sing a song together to worship. But I'm going to encourage you that as everybody else leaves, that you would come and talk to me. I want to talk to you about what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live constantly reconciled with God? What does it mean to live out the way God purposed your life to be? And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that for all of us in our walk with you and our relationships with each other, that you would help us to live out the concept of reconciliation and peace. In Jesus' name.